We're engaged in conversations all the time, aren't we? And you know how it is when you meet someone new, you're trying to find some kind of point of common interest, common ground. And, you know, this time of the year, a day like today, oftentimes that common ground can be the Super Bowl and who, who you're cheering for and who do you want to win. Do you think Tom Brady and Bill Belichick can win another one? You know, other times of the year, the, the conversation can often turn to just family and maybe kids or grandkids and what they're doing, maybe your job and what you do for a living and this kind of thing. And, um, but we try to find things that we can just talk about and we can relate to one another about. But in the midst of those conversations, can you take a conversation like that and turn it to the gospel? Can you be engaged in a conversation like that and then turn it toward the gospel in just a winsome, joyful kind of way? And I know you're thinking, some of you may be thinking, you know, Steve, it's just kind of a hard world out there. And to just kind of do that with a stranger, that might seem awkward. It might be a little uncomfortable. I just, you know, I don't know. And yeah, I mean, I understand that. I get that. I understand that it can be hard to just inject Jesus into a conversation. But you know, it was hard to inject Jesus into a a conversation in ancient Athens as well. And yet that's exactly what Paul did. We can learn a lot from him in Acts 17, 16 through 34. Acts 17, 16 through 34, we've been following this church on the move. Paul and now Silas and Timothy and Luke, they're on this second missionary journey. We followed them last week. We, we saw them. We, we kind of ended just kind of briefly. They get kicked out of Thessalonica. They get into Berea and they get kicked out of Berea. And now they're, they're in Athens. Paul, they kind of leave Paul there alone. We'll see that in a minute. But Paul's in Athens And he delivers this conversation. He has this conversation with the Athenians that just challenged what they believe. We'll learn a lot from just the conversation this morning. Let's look at Acts 17, 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was writing for them at Athens, waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst but some men joined him and believed, among whom, among whom also were Dionysus, the Aeropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, remember, Paul, he's just been run out of Berea. Before that, he was run out of Thessalonica. He was threatened. His life had been threatened. And in fact, if you read 1 Thessalonians, you see that Paul was concerned that the church of Thessalonica in Thessalonica even survived. He, he didn't even know if the church had made it. He was, he was run out in such a, such a way that he didn't know. Paul must have been so grateful then to receive the word from Timothy later that not only had the church in Thessalonica survived, but it was thriving. And after the trials that Paul had been through in Thessalonica and then Berea, his friends decide that it's a good idea just to leave Paul alone in Athens, that he can rest up for a few days, and then they'll meet up to, again together. Now, we don't know which of the friends thought this was a good idea, because after following Paul a little while, you would think that they would have known Paul well enough to know that if you leave Paul alone in a city, he's going to find himself in some trouble. And that's exactly what happens. I mean, Paul just can't keep his mouth shut. And so, and, and you know, if it were you and me, and our friends were to tell us, hey, we're going to leave you in Athens for a few days, then we're going to meet back up, we might think, okay, that's great. Athens is a beautiful city. We can do a little sightseeing, see everything, rest up a little bit, and then when y'all come, then we'll get right back to the mission work, which is why we're here. That, that might be our thinking, but Paul's passion isn't sightseeing, it's the gospel, and so everywhere he goes, when you see him in the synagogue, in the marketplace, wherever he goes, he's sharing Jesus with people. And in a moment, we're going to look at what he said and just the, the winsome way with which he said it and the craftiness and the cleverness of his argument. But, but first, I want to stop here for a moment. Because as we see Paul just everywhere he's going, in the synagogue, in the marketplace, just having conversations about Jesus, you know, some of us would say, I don't know if I could do that. I mean, just all the time. This is always on the top of his mind. This is always what's coming out. It just oozes out of him. Conversations about the gospel. And we tend to think, you know, sometimes that's just awkward. That's hard to do. I don't, I don't want to look dumb if they ask me a question that I can't answer. And, and so sometimes we kind of shrink back because we get focused on what it is 
we think we're there to do. And, you know, I understand all that, okay? I understand awkwardness a little bit. I'm a pastor, okay? You know how those conversations go? Hey, how you doing? So what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, hey, nice meeting you. You know, I got somewhere I got to be. I'll talk to you later. That's just how it goes sometimes. I've been in plenty of conversations like that where they find out what I do, and that's just a conversation killer, okay? So I get awkwardness. I get it. I mean, sometimes we can be watching like a swim thing going on. I tell someone, hey, I'm a pastor. Oh, you know, I got to go somewhere. I'm like, the practice just started. Where are you going? But that's how it works. Paul here he has this level of excitement and enthusiasm, and it's just coming out. You know, we can train, and we have resources and material to train on how to start conversations and, and even some objections that you might receive as you share the gospel. We have materials on all that. We can train all that. We can train how to share the gospel. But one thing we can't train is excitement and enthusiasm for the gospel, we can't give you the relationship with Jesus. You either have that relationship and Jesus is either working in your life and doing things in your life and you're passionate and you're excited about it, or you're not. That's not something that we can give. Paul is in Athens, okay? And it was said at that time that it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was to find a man. That's the scope of the city. There were over 30,000 statues of gods and goddesses. Okay, they literally lined the streets of Athens with idols. The, the centerpiece of the city council was this statue to the idol Apollo. The, the, the buildings that housed the public records, they were dedicated to the mother of our, all gods. From the Parthenon to the Acropolis, Paul was surrounded by idols. But none of that dampers Paul's enthusiasm for the gospel. I mean, he's not just marching around saying, man, this place is evil. This place is so bad. He doesn't look like he's just been sucking on some lemons and just like, man, you guys are so lost. You don't know how bad it is. That, that's not Paul at all. He, he's there and he wants to give people what they need most. Now, when, when Steph and I got married, she knew that I was a New York Yankee fan. Okay, she knew that going into it. And, you know, well, I, and she knows now that hey, if the Yankees are involved in an important game, there's a decent chance that she's going to lose me for a couple hours. And she'll walk by the TV sometimes, and she'll wonder what's going on. And she'll ask, and sometimes she even, like, so which team is the Yankees? Like, do you not understand the pinstripes? You know, she, but she doesn't get the tradition and the championships and all of that. And I, I can't give her that. I can talk to her about the Yankees and why they're the best and everything, and I can, I, I can, I can, I, don't laugh at that. <laughs> but I can't give her the enthusiasm. You know, she either gets it or she doesn't. And she can give me a bad time about it, and y'all can too, but you either get the enthusiasm or you don't. Paul has it. I mean, what? What has God done in your life that just makes you excited? That, that when you look at what God has done in your life, what is it that just charges your batteries, that makes you enthusiastic about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus, about what God is doing? I mean, and if you have to think of something that is back further than like last week, man, you need to get into the word more. 
You, you need to develop and cultivate this relationship with God. You gotta, when's the last time that you're just out talking to someone and you shared the gospel because it just oozes out of you like it does Paul? When's the last time you were studying scripture and as you're going through, something sticks out and you say, I, I, you know, this affects the way I live. I need to change the behavior. I need to change the way I'm thinking because of what I'm reading here. This is conforming me into the image of Jesus. A church on the move is enthusiastic. A church on the move is enthusiastic. It's excited. The church should be the most, should, should be the most excited people on the planet because we have a living hope. We're not like the world who, hey, if the, if the world goes down, we're in trouble. We have a living hope. We know this ends well for us. We know the end of the story. There is no worry in the church because we know God protects us. There is no fear in the church because we know God is not surprised by anything. God is never caught off guard as, oh, I didn't know that they were going to elect that person to be a leader. I didn't know that this was going to happen. There is no fear in the church. Because we have confidence in the goodness and the graciousness of our God. There is no hate in the church. We don't look at those people and say, oh, they're different. I hate them. No, no, no. God died for those people. We love all people. This is the attitude of the church. The church is the most optimistic, excited place to be in the world today. And I don't think there's a better time to be alive than in this present generation. There's no other, as, as I look back and read through history, there's no generation I'd rather be living in. There's no generation I'd rather be raising kids in than this generation today. Why? Because we're closer to the return of Christ than we've ever been before. You know, sometimes we get worried about what's going to happen. God is not surprised. And sometimes we think that this is our home. This isn't our home. We're ambassadors sent on God's behalf to represent him to our culture. And when we think that this is home, and then if anything goes bad, we start getting worried. There's no need to worry. God's in control. Our home is better than this. And we're here for a mission. And Paul, he's walking around alone, okay? His friends have left him. He's walking around right after his life has been threatened, and he's just been run out of two cities. His excitement is not dampened. If anything, it's just increased. He's excited. He's in an idolatrous city, surrounded by idols everywhere he goes, but he's having conversations with people everywhere he goes, with the Jews in the synagogue, every day in the marketplace. God is working in his life, and Paul can't keep this good news to himself because good news just has to get out. And amongst those in the city, there's Epicureans and they're Stoics, the Epicureans, they, they believed that the purpose of life was just pleasure, that you just pursue pleasure at all costs. There were the hedonists of the day. You just indulge life. And whatever will bring pleasure, that's the purpose of life. That's what life is about. The Stoics were kind of opposite. The Stoics thought that the purpose of life is self-mastery over pleasure and pain, that, that nothing is going to get me too high and nothing is going to get me too low. That I'm, I've mastered this. And it's interesting, Stoicism is actually making a return in some sections of America today. There were some people, they were digging around in the closet somewhere and they uncovered the writings of Seneca, a, a, a Stoic. And so they're saying, look at this great new thing, Stoicism. It's not new at all, it's, it's actually really old. But, but this is kind of a new thing that's making a comeback. But anyway, the Athenians... 
They prided themselves on being people who were very tolerant people, a very curious people. They liked to hear something new. Did you hear that? They were always listening to the next new thing, the next new idea. They loved hearing about new ideas and the latest trends and the different beliefs. And they're real tolerant until Paul comes along and starts sharing the gospel And then as as Paul starts sharing of Jesus and sin and redemption, then he's called a babbler, or maybe your translation, a seed picker. And he's taken to the highest court in Athens. You know, I thought they were supposed to have an open mind, but that goes away real quick when he starts confronting them with their sin. But he's taken to the highest court in Athens. And let's just examine for a moment what Paul says, okay, the content of his conversation. He says, but notice how Paul, uh, notice, he says he's talking to idol worshipers, okay, idol worshipers. Whatever practices you find offensive today in, in our culture, it was worse in Athens, Okay, everything you can imagine that you think is bad today, it's worse there. It was 10 times worse. All kinds of evil took place in that city. But notice, Paul doesn't begin, hey, you guys are so messed up. Your thinking is so vile. No, he says, I see that you are a very religious people. Did, did you get, I see that you are a very religious people. What's he doing? He's finding some common ground with them. Yeah, they're religious. They, they, they got all kinds of idols and false gods that they're worshiping, but he's finding common ground. He's working on the relationship. He's not being offensive. He's not calling them out or anything. He's, he's finding common ground. He's presenting the gospel in a winsome way with a smile on his face. This is not some hellfire and brimstone turn or burn theology. That's not Paul's presentation at all. He says, hey, I see that you're very religious. And then he says, I also noticed that you had this temple to an unknown God. He says, I want to tell you how you can know that God. He takes an object and he just pivots toward the gospel. He takes something that they are passionate about and he uses it as a bridge to tell these people about Jesus. It's, it's actually, as I used to lead uh, mission trips, this is, a, this is a practice that I would use with the teams that I was leading, and we turn it into a bit of a game. Today, take any object, let's start a conversation about this object, and then your goal is to turn, to pivot from that object to the gospel. It can't be in a silly kind of way, but do it in a winsome, joyful, normal way as a normal conversation. You go home this afternoon, you can practice this with your family. Just have a conversation about something, and then your goal is to pivot from that topic to the gospel. Can you turn from an object to the gospel? That's what Paul's doing. He sees something in their culture, and he uses that as an an object lesson to share the gospel. And so he begins to introduce the Athenians to Jesus. He says, first of all, there is one God. There is one God, and he is the creator. You look around and you see a building with all of its doors and windows and bricks and everything, and you know there is a builder. You you look around and you see a garden with neatly rows of fruits and vegetables, and you know that there was a gardener. 
You look around and maybe you're out driving in the car and you're listening to music on the radio and the music's really entertaining and you know there's a musician. You see a portrait, you know there's an artist. Paul's saying you look around and you see creation with all the complexities of it and you know that there is a creator. And so this is where he begins with that God is the creator God. And then he says, and this creator God does not dwell in temples made by human hands as though God needed anything from us. My, my friends in Africa, you hear me talk about them sometimes, uh, uh, two pastors that I talk with every Thursday, pastors in Sierra Leone, one of them, a good friend, Pastor Pius, he, his church is meeting or met for the first time their first worship service in a building on Friday. Okay, before this, they had met outside or in grass huts or, or, or something like that, but now they have a building, and, and it's a great, a great accomplishment for them, and it's, I'm excited for their church. And, you know, Pastor Pius, in order to get the building, at one point, he sold his motorcycle, which he and his wife and his two little kids used to drive, and I know it's hard to imagine four people on a little moped, but that's what they did, and, and they drove to to where they gathered for church. And he sold that so that they could buy a piece of property in, in order to build the building. And because of that, then he and his family had to walk about five miles to the church each day. This is the commitment that he has to be there on time in order to preach. And you can just imagine the heat of Africa walking that kind of distance there and then home with two little kids each Sunday. And this is what he's doing. We were able to raise money and, and buy him a new um, motorcycle, but, but this is the commitment. And so he was so excited as I was talking to him Thursday that on Friday they were going to be worshiping together in this building. And as the building's been being built and he's been sending me pictures and giving me updates, one of the things that I've been telling him and cautioning him is, hey, Pastor Pius, I'm so excited that you're getting a building. And I pray that God uses it to equip people in their faith and to develop their faith and, and use it to win more people to Jesus. But don't worship the building. That the building is nothing special. The building is nothing sacred. There is nothing inherently holy about a building. In fact, if you think a building is holy or special or sacred, then you have the same theology as the godless, idolatrous Athenians. This is what God is saying. This is what Paul is saying to them, that God doesn't need a building made by human hands. He doesn't need it. We need it. Because if we're outside, then we need the, we, we get high, we get distracted. Well, we need the building. God doesn't need it. God gets to determine what is holy and sacred and special. And he says it's not a building because you people are flawed. Humanity is a flawed lot. And you don't get to build something and then declare it holy and special and sacred because you're incapable of building anything that would be holy, special, or sacred. He says, me as God, I determine what is holy and special and sacred. And I am more than a monument. I am more than a building. And I choose not to inhabit a building. I choose to inhabit you and me. That I choose people to be set apart. That I choose people to make them holy. That I choose to sanctify people. God is not in the business of saving buildings. He's in the business of saving people. And that's a better thing. 
And so he's relaying this to the Athenians. And he says, the creator, he does not dwell in temples made by man as if God needs anything. God is a self-sufficient God. And this is Paul's point to the Athenians, the one true God. He's more than a monument. He's more than a building. He is, he is creator, and as creator, he is completely self-sufficient. I cannot do, you cannot do anything that would add to God. God is not in need of us. He, he is transcendent. That's what Paul is getting at here, the transcendence of God. A God who is separate and self-sustaining. He, he is separate and self-sustaining. He doesn't need you and me. He is self-sustaining. We don't get to add anything apart from him. Anything we do, any good work we do, it must be empowered by the Holy Spirit for it to bring any type of eternal fruit at all. But as Paul gets into this transcendence of God, he moves on and he says that God is also imminent that he is personally involved with his creation. He's personally involved with it. He's not set apart from it so distant as not to care, no, quite the opposite. He is personally involved with every aspect of our being. The Bible says that he knows how many hairs are on our head. Even the very minute details of life he cares about. That there is no trivial aspect of life. There is no division between the secular and the sacred. God now rests in us, resides in us. And so we get to bring the presence of God into every situation, every building, every place we go. There is no separation. And this is what he's getting at, the imminence of God, a God who is personally involved in his creation. And Paul says he is consistent with humanity. That we as humans are one race. Did you see that? We are one race, one people, one nation. That we all trace our family tree. You want to get the ancestry thing, ancestry.com, whatever. We all trace it back to Adam and Eve. That we're all image bearers of God. That we are all equally made in the image of God. And that we all equally inherited the sin from Adam. We all need the same Savior. Regardless of ethnic background, regardless of skin color, we are all one race. And the diversity within that race displays the creativity and the beauty of God. I look forward to the day when that glorious picture in Revelation, when the great multitude gathers together. And you have people of every nation, every tribe, every language worshiping before God the Father. And having been, if you've never been on a mission trip to some other cultures, you see the different ways in which people worship. And I can imagine that that worship there, it might not be the way we picture it because there's going to be all kinds of worship taking place. There'll be soulful music and there'll be contemporary praise and there may be rap music and there, there'll be soulful gospel. There'll be all kinds of worship and it will be beautiful because God accepts the praises of his people. He delights in the praises of his people. I look forward to the day when perhaps this worship service is so diverse that we might not like every single style of worship personally. It might not all be our preference, but we see the beauty of God on display through the creativity of his people because it's God's 
people, his one race of people gathered together in unity, worshiping through diversity their one true God. This demonstrates the unity of the church, something no other place on the planet can exhibit like the church gets to exhibit. And Paul, as he's quoting and as he's relaying this message to the Athenians, did you notice that he even quotes a godless, the godless Athenian poets? He quotes godless Athenian poets to make his point. In order to do that, that means Paul read them, that he knew what the godless Athenian poets were saying. And, and he says, hey, I, I know what you're thinking. I know your theories on life. He studied them so that he could win them. And he, so he could tailor his argument to them. You know, when, when Paul go and you go back and you look, as Paul entered the synagogue and he spoke to the Jews, he often would start his arguments from Moses. I mean, we read that a few weeks ago where Paul started from Moses and then worked up to Jesus. Do you see this time when he's talking to Athenians? They don't know anything about Moses, Abraham, David. I mean, that's all lost on them. They they don't have this Old Testament background. They don't understand that. So where does Paul go to here? He goes back to creation, and he even uses their own poets to make the point that there is one true God, that there is one race, and that there is one way for all people to the one true God. There is only one way. And Paul says, hey, and you don't get to choose that way. You, you don't get to choose if, if, if your God is made of gold or silver. You don't get to choose the way God is worshipped and the way God is approached. Says, God, as creator, as holy, as set apart, but at the same time personal, he invites us. And he does that through the resurrection of his son. You can't, the good news of the gospel is not that you can get to God. The good news of the gospel is that God has come to us. And he told us who we were. He told us that we are one race, dead in our sin, but that we can be made alive in Jesus to a life of meaning, to a life of purpose, to a life that counts. You know, people today, they're struggling with the question of identity. Who am I? What is life about? Don't be afraid of the gospel. Tell them of the one true God, how we are one people, and and that God has provided the only way of escape through his son Jesus, that he died for them, that he loved them so much, that he died for them on the cross, bearing their sin, and that he rose again, defeating sin and death on their behalf. See, we we get to be this excited, energetic, enthusiastic people because we have this good news. And his resurrection, it calls us to a life of purpose and a life of hope. And you just take that conversation as far as it will go. And sometimes as you start it, it it might not go very far at first. Some of these conversations, they, they take place over the periods of days and weeks and months and perhaps even years. But don't grow weary from having the conversation. You know, Jesus, he spends a lot of time um, talk, giving illustrations about agriculture. You know, you, you plant, you wait. You water, you wait. A, a little sprout starts to grow and you wait. It takes a long time before the harvest. 
You see, it takes a long time because sometimes people can't process everything right at once. There's a lot of waiting, but we don't grow weary in doing good. We keep having the conversations. Don't necessarily harvest overnight. And you see it here, right? Some people, they hear Paul's message and they mock him. They make fun of him. They tease him. Others, they hear Paul's message and they say, you know, I'm not ready to begin a relationship with Jesus yet. I need some more time. I want to hear you again about this. I want to come back and kind of further go down this road, have this conversation a little more. And then others believed. Then there were some who just believed right away. Are you ready to have those conversations? Are you ready to find some common ground with people? People who may view life way different than you. The Athenians and Paul, I mean, you talk about contrasting worldviews. No two worldviews kind of butt heads quite as much. But are you ready to approach those people, not as judge and jury, but as an ambassador sent by God on behalf of him to tell of the good news of Jesus? You know, there's no fear in the church because God says, hey, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. There's no fear in the church because God says, I am building my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You almost get this picture of the church going toward hell to rescue people who are on their way there. And Jude says, it's as if you're rescuing them from the flames. That we contend for the faith in such a way that we see people who we know are headed to a godless eternity. And it's as if we're rescuing them from the flames by telling them the good news of Jesus. You know, if there was one phrase that I wish we could strike in the church, it's the idea that we go to church. And we all say it, I say it, hey, let's get ready, we're going to church. We gather to worship here. But the building is not the church. We are the church. And God sends his church into the world. God is saving his church, not the building, you and me. And if we can get this theology that's paper thin out of our vocabulary and understand that he has saved us for a mission to go and be transformative influencers in our culture, Man, that would just go a long way in how we think about who we are. That the church is not merely a place to gather and worship. That's an aspect of it for sure. Let's not give up meeting together. But the building's not the church. We're the church. And, and, you know, one of the things that stood out out to me this week, and I don't know what stood out to you. I hope you have stories of what God's doing in your life and what you've discovered by studying the scripture. And I hope it's, uh, you have stories of how God is changing your behavior and giving you joy and hope and optimism, correcting your thinking. But one of the things that stood out to me this week as I was studying was how God protects his church, his people. Paul didn't know that if those people in Thessalonica who believed and who planted this church, if they survived, if they made it, and, you know, it's Paul's practice that he would stay long enough to raise up elders, to raise up leaders, to lead and guide the church. He didn't have time to do that in Thessalonica because the Jews ran him out. And so he was concerned that maybe it didn't make it. And, you know, and there's a lot of times in the history of the church where 
local expressions of the body of Christ become concerned about the future of a, of a church. But God always protects and provides for his bride. As you see, he always protects and provides for his bride. And he's got us too. He's got us too. It's a hard world out there. And it can be challenging. It can be intimidating. Sometimes it can be awkward to have conversations about the gospel. It is. But as we read Paul's example to the Athenians, I think one of the things we realize is that the difficulty in evangelism is not them. The difficulty in evangelism is not the world. I mean, we understand that the world is going to have a worldly worldview. That's just how it works. The difficulty in evangelism is often us. That we fail to understand the mission that we've been called to. That we fail to understand the purpose for which we've been saved. And so we get distracted by whatever the big news is of the day. And sometimes we can be overwhelmed with life and what's going on. And we can forget that God has called us to have conversations like these, to take just ordinary everyday moments, pivot them to the gospel, and share with people the news that will change their eternities. It's the greatest calling you could ever be given. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, it's your calling. It's why you're here. If it, was, if it was merely to go to heaven, you'd be saved and taken up to heaven right away. That's not the way God works. He chooses to use you and me in this redemptive process. And there's nothing better than that. So this week, church, let's go with great enthusiasm and tell this one race the one way to the one true God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this great calling that you've given us. And right now as we pray, I just want to take a moment and let each of you pray for maybe the people in your life who you know, maybe it's a neighbor, a coworker, friends, family, who you know they need Jesus more than they need their next breath. T take a few moments and just pray for them. And as you're praying for them, would you also pray for the commitment to be the ambassador, to be the messenger that those people need. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would choose to use us, that you've saved us with a purpose in mind. And so God, for these friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, these people that, that we've just prayed for individually, God, we pray that you would use us, your church, to bring this message of hope the good news of Jesus to their lives. Help us not to shrink back, but to go with boldness, with excitement, with enthusiasm, to share who you are to people who desperately need you. God, we need your help to do this, so we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.